Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, we continue the, uh, the, the rush to the finish line for this year uh, as, as, as Rosh Hashanah like, quickly, quickly approaches. And we're in uh, Parshas Ki Tzetze, and this is uh, one of the landmark Parshas of Elul, um, that, that the, the great month leading up to Rosh Hashanah, when we get a chance to really kind of put our, 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 our lives in order and, and everything like that. And we've, we've mentioned it before, but I, I, I think it's, it's good to, to just state it again, just how, how crucial um, this period of time is. I actually learned, and I, I didn't honestly follow all of the math, but it was a pretty amazing bottom line, which is that um, this particular rabbi, I'm not remembering his name, I'm sorry, brought that one hour in Elul is equal to 12 hours of the, of the rest of the year. Meaning to say what a person can accomplish in Elul. That one hour in Elul equals 12 hours of regular time. And there's a whole series of mathematical uh, uh, ways that he derives this. Um, I mentioned this to someone and they had a very immediate cynical reaction. And they were like, how? Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They just sort of like grumbled loudly when I mentioned it. And, and I said, well, look, look at it this way. Imagine you have a seed and you plant it in sand or you plant it in like very rich fertile ground, right? So you see it's the same seed and, and yet you see it grows very differently in two different environments. So one of the, you know, sort of exciting, fascinating things about the way we understand time and the passage of time from the, the Torah perspective is that all time is not the same. That every month there's different personalities of time. And, and that's a very, it's a very core, um, it's a very core understanding of how we approach life and, and, and things like that. And so this time of Elul is a very, very fertile time. So, with that in mind, things, things really grow. And, uh, you know, I just, again, just to be super practical, uh, to, to give an, an understanding that's meaningful to me, when, um, when, you, when you would understand a person, say, applying for a job, like, or, or, or rather, an example that I like is, imagine, imagine, uh, there's an actor who's going up for a part and, and the, uh, the actor says, you know, you know what I would love to do? I would love to um, play this role in, in this new production in, in this week's episode where I, like, I juggle, like, uh, you know, have you ever seen these people who will juggle like a tennis ball with a bowling ball with like a flaming stick? And a chainsaw, like there are guys who do that. It's like unbelievable, right? So they go, wow, I, you know, I could fit that into an episode. That would be, that would be unbelievable. Sure, I'll, we'll write to that. And then you say to the guy, have you, have you ever juggled before? And the guy goes, no. <laughs> and it's sort of like, well, you know, we might cast someone else for that role then. You know, so, but imagine the person says, you know, I, I, I'd love to do this. And then, and then the author or the producer says to him, have you ever juggled before? And he goes, you know, I've been taking classes. I've been practicing. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know how to do it. Or I'm almost there. I'm not there yet, but I will be there by production. Then I would say, okay, you know what? I know this coach who like trains people for like, 
you know, the you know, Cirque du Soleil will 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 get him and will have him work with you and everything like that. So what does that have to do with uh, Elul and Rosh Hashanah? So it has a lot to do with it, because imagine you pray for all sorts of things, right? I want I want X, I want Y, I want Z. Please, God, bless me with all these things, and then you're able to say, but you know something? I've actually made inroads in each of these things, right? Like I, I, I and there, maybe they're small inroads, but I actually began the first couple of steps in these things. Then what you've done is you've created a vessel to hold the blessing, to hold the light. And then God says, oh, right, you want to do it and you've already made the effort and you're already starting and everything like that. All right, let's take it to the next level this year. So that's, again, one of the great opportunities of this month leading up to the new year is that you can begin with your positive actions to start to make blessings or, or vessels to hold these blessings. Okay, so now with this in mind, we've got, again, one of the, one of the core uh, teachings, one of the landmark parshas leading up to, to the new year. And it's called Kitsetse. Um, and it says, when you go out to war against your enemies, Hashem, your God, will deliver them into your hand. And then it, 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 it them into your hand. And it, and it, and it goes on. Um, so, so the Torah is always talking on a very, very practical level. Remember, we say that the Torah is the infinite compressed into the finite. What's written on the page, especially as we understand it through the Talmud and how the rabbis explain it, it's always talking about what it's talking about on the simple level, but at the same time, it's, it's going so much deeper. And I, I, I just want to explain what I, I mean a little bit further. Um, it, it's not always talking about <laughs> what it says uh, in, the, in the simplest language. It, here it is. Here it really is talking about the, the halachas, the, 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 the different laws of how we're supposed to conduct ourselves um, ethically in a time of warfare. So here it is actually talking about that. But it's also talking about battling our evil inclination and everything like that. But you have instances where the actual written line itself is never to be even understood on the most simple level. So the best example of that is where it says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It never meant that. Not even on the simplest level, it never meant that. And just to get a sort of a historical perspective in what the, the Torah tradition is in terms of these types of things, let's just go back all the way back to Mount Sinai. So we say that God literally dictated letter by letter the words of the Torah to Moshe, and Moshe is writing them down and understanding them, and then God says, okay, stop, don't write this down, let me just explain to you what that passage means. So the classic example of this is on Sukkot, we take the Arbaminim, the, the four species, and it says, take the fruit from the beautiful tree. Now that's the most subjective line in the entire world because what, what would you define as the beautiful tree, right? You can imagine every culture, every corner of the world over the millennia are, are going to define it differently. But there's only one fruit that was ever taken ever, and that is the esrik, you know, the, the citron, which is like a cousin to the lemon, which is a really bizarre choice if you think about it. It's, it wasn't my idea, it's God's idea, right? But the point is, is that this hyper-specific choice 
is the only one that was ever done. And yet, you see that the verse in the Torah invites all sorts of various interpretations. The fruit from the beautiful tree. So what happened? So God said to Moshe, write down this verse, take the fruit from the beautiful tree, and then he says to Moshe, stop writing, don't write this down. Let me explain to you what that means. That is the esrog. That's the citron. Okay? Then when Moshe hands over the Torah and these teachings to the elders and to the children of Israel, he says, and what is that? And he gives God's own explanation of the verse itself. So, so let's put all these things together because this is one of these core understandings that every person has to have and be able to rattle off to anyone who asks and everything like that. What you hear right now is that the written Torah and the oral Torah were given at the same time by God to Moshe at Mount Sinai. The verses and the explanations for the verses were both given simultaneously. That's a huge, huge breakthrough idea, and everyone has to know that. The oral law, God's own explanations, then get codified a long time down the line after being passed down for generation and generation, copious notes being taken, and it's called the Talmud. Right? But what is the source of the Talmud? It's God's own explanation of the verses to Moshe on Mount Sinai. Okay, so I sort of painted myself into the corner by saying that the simple level of the text is always the case, but it's not always the case. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was never an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That was always workman's compensation. And what's so interesting about that, what's so interesting about that is that uh, one of the very verses which is used to sort of like excoriate, I don't get enough opportunities to use the word excoriate in my life, but I guess this is one of them, um, to excoriate the, the primitiveness of the Torah, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you barbarians, right? Actually meant from the earliest time workman's compensation, which is incredibly enlightened, which just goes to show you that people who criticize the Torah, without understanding it, they don't know what they're talking about. See, you see that in another place, which is um, very well-meaning and intellectually honest and, and, and sincere scientists will look at the opening of the Torah and read it as a science textbook about creation. And this is a fundamental error. The Torah is not a history textbook. It's not a science textbook. Torah means teachings. And, and how could you, do, if you wanted to actually scientifically describe the origins of the universe, how many volumes of textbooks would you need to explain all of the, the science involved in that? It's done in a few verses in the beginning of the Torah. So, I mean, to think that the Torah is even making a claim that it's trying to scientifically explain all the mechanics of what went on is, is, is presumptuous on the person who's, who's approaching it that way. So, I, again, it's, it's just very, it's very important. Like, if you hold up a chicken and say, this chicken is a lousy dinosaur, right? Well, who told you it was a dinosaur? <laughs> Right? And then you write, you know, like, you know, books about how stupid this dinosaur chicken is. Right? Well, 
but you weren't, you, you didn't appreciate what you had to begin with. So, so it's very important to understand not only what the Torah is, but also to understand what the Torah is not. Um, and I think that um, well-meaning, you know, scientific approaches, critical approaches, neg- neglect, bless you, neglect that, that, that approach um, to, to the detriment of everyone, I think. Um, okay. So now let's, let's, let's get into this. So it says, when you go out to war, and again, this is talking about, this is talking about um, actual warfare itself, but, but for our purposes, especially leading up to Rosh Hashanah, let's just concentrate on the idea of when you battle your Yetzirah. So let's just do like um, a primer in what the Yetzirah, also translated as the negative inclination or the evil inclination, let's just do Yetzirah 101, just a primer on the approach of what it is, what it isn't, and, and some basic tools of how we can deal with our own um, uh, darker side, if you will. I think that's, that's, a, that's a, a fair way of translating it. And it's not inaccurate to kind of picture it as sort of in the classic cartoon uh, uh, way of, of a devil on one shoulder and an angel on the other shoulder, and each trying to steer you in their own unique direction, right? So the Yetzirah would be the, the devil on your shoulder, if you will. So, so one thing that's just like very, very interesting is uh, I learned, I, I don't know in, in whose name, but we'll say in the name of the Rebbe's, right? That when it says, when you go out to war, when you go out from where? When you go out from the womb. In other words, this war against the Yetzirah, right? This war, which is life, begins from the moment that you're born. In fact, you want to hear something that I'm really still trying to wrap my mind around, honestly. They say that a person's Yetzir Tov doesn't really enter into their, until their Bar Bat Mitzvah. So that a person actually grows up with, with this basic survival kind of like um, ideology. Now that's not to say that a person isn't doing good um, during those years. But it is, just on the most basic level, a way of understanding how core a human's survival instinct is implanted into them. And how hardwired we are in order to sort of like just provide for ourselves initially. Um, so, so a person really has to respect their Yetzirahs. And they have to understand that the Yetzahara is actually an angel. It's, 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 it's something that is actually beyond a person. And it, it knows you better than you know yourself. And not only that, but it says that it renews itself every single day and comes up with new strategies every single day. Right? So that if you, if you think that, you know what? I finally outsmarted it. I finally know its tricks, you know what? You may have outsmarted it, but you know one of its tricks. Or maybe you know two of its tricks. Or maybe you know dozens of its tricks. But because there's a supernatural element to it, it doesn't run out of tricks. (laughs) 
I was talking with someone uh, the other day, and he said he's a, he does um, some coding. And he, he said, you know, when I finally, there's this feeling that I get sometimes, which is that I, I, I solved it, I did it. And he says, and invariably, I never solved it. <laughs> and now I know when I get that feeling, I solved it, I did it, I just, it's just moving on. I just know not even to even take that thought seriously, which I thought was, I thought was interesting. So again, to respect the fact that there's this angelic quality of, about the Yetzirah. Now, one of the things that is, can be very reassuring once you have this understanding of the Yetzirah is that a person can really have very ugly thoughts, extremely ugly thoughts. And, and if, you, if, you, if you appreciate the fact that there's a Yetzirah, you can say to yourself, that's the Yetzirah. In other words, it's not you. It's not you. And that's that's actually can be a tremendous relief. I know it's a relief for me. So I said, you know, that's that's the Yitzhahara. So you can make a you can begin to um, clarify and perhaps even organize the voices in your head. All of us have voices in our head, right? Um, hopefully, we're on the healthy side of that. <laughs> voices on our head side, <laughs> but but everyone everyone has voices in their head. So when if you can clarify. You know, when that's the Yetzirah, then you can actually give yourself a lot of peace, right? Now, another thing. You have to understand something, which is that the Yetzirah, the Gomorrah says in, 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 in Masechta Sukkah, the, the, the Yetzirah has seven different names, all right? And the seventh name, the Gomorrah says, which is the most insidious name, is Tzafon which means hidden or secret. Now, what's, what's so fascinating about this seventh name of the Yetzirah is that basically when it's operating within you, sometimes you, you'll like have a thought which is like, oh, do X, Y, or Z. And you know you're not going to do X, Y, or Z. You just know it. it. It's obvious that it's coming from the Yetzirah. So you go, no. You go, no, that's the Yetzirah, no. There are other times where it's very, very unclear that it's the Yetzirah. And this is the seventh name of the Yetzirah. This is Tzafon. This is hidden, secret. Which is when the Yetzirah starts, I, I would call it spiritual identity theft, where the Yetzirah starts speaking with the word I. And you hear this voice in your head, I want this. I want that. And then you think, oh, since I want this or I want that, let me just go and do this or go and do that. But the voice that said, I want this or I want that, wasn't you, it was the Yetzirah. And that's, 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 that's where it gets, like, that's when you really have to roll up your sleeves. Because that's when it gets very, that's when it gets very tricky, right? That's when a person has to ask, actually ask themselves, do I really want this? Do I really want that? And then they can go, no, I don't. And they go, ah, it's the Yetzirah. <laughs> right? So it's, that's, 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 that's very tricky. Now you might say to yourself, you're saying that it's, the Yetzirah is an angel, that it's divine. What's God doing to me? Like, why is God, what, what exactly is God doing to me? So, so, so are we saying that 
that there's a, a, a divine form of evil, that there's really, there's good and there's evil and there's, a, there's God and there's dev- the devil and they're wrestling it out and everything like this. The problem with that, because we don't say that, the problem with that is that the premise of Judaism is Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. God is one. There's only one God. There's only one power in the universe. So if, if that's the case, then wh- why am I being tempted to do wrong? Right? Like, where is that coming from if there's only one power? So we have to understand, again, on a very fundamental bread and butter Judaism 101 level, that evil works for good. Okay? Evil serves good. So, so how does that work exactly? So there's a parable that I heard in the name of the Baal Shem Tov, whose Yurtzeit, uh, or birthday is coming up. Uh, or is it Yurtzeit? No, it's birthday. It's birthday. Chayelul, it's Tuesday night. Um, so, and also of the Alta Revis, it's his birthday, I believe. Um, so, so, uh, so the Baal Shem Tov says that there's a, uh, an example, it's a parable. There's a king. And the king had a, a son, and, and, and the, the, the son didn't do anything wrong in the palace. But it was hard to like, figure out, is it because the son is so good? Or is it because the son is in the presence of the king in the palace, and therefore he feels like he's being watched, and so that's why he's doing good? So what's the deal? So the king decides that he's going to test the son to really see where the son is holding. So he sets him up in a very distant province. And he hires a harlot to seduce him. Now the harlot knows that she's working for the king. And all the time that the harlot is seducing the son, the harlot is thinking, please say no, please say no, please say no. And that's kind of like us. When our souls are in heaven, and we have... No free choice up in heaven, because it's so obvious to us what the truth is. When we come down into this world, everything is very hidden. In fact, remember, as we always say, the word in Hebrew for world, olam, has the root ayin lamid mem, which means hidden. So this, the word world means hidden, because God is hidden in this world. By the way, he's no less present in this world. You always have to keep those thoughts together. In other words... He's hidden in this world, but he's 100% as present in this world as he is in the highest dimensions of heaven. A very, very important, very important point. So that's how it is with the Yetzirah. When the Yetzirah comes to a person, because it's working for God, it wants you to say no. And, and we say that if you say yes to it, it tears its clothes and cries. If you say no to it, it jumps up and dances. So that's, that's how we reconcile what is this, you know, there's only one God, but there's this force which is trying to lead me astray, so what's the thing? Okay, now, let's, let's question that last statement. Is, is that the case? Is it trying to lead you astray? It's absolutely not trying to lead you astray. That's another sort of mythbuster Yetzirah moment, right? It is not trying to lead you astray. What is it trying to do? It is trying to draw out your greatness and make your greatness manifest. Okay? This, this life is, is really composed of a series of tests. 
It really is. It really, really is. And this is actually how we set about building and completing the world. Every time we overcome a challenge and overcome a test, we harmonize the competing energies of the world. We, re- re- we reveal more the oneness of God. And we make, we make, a, we, we emanate light from our soul. I mean, there's no, there's no other way of saying it. When you overcome a challenge, there's a light from your soul that comes into the world, and it, it, it brings up and elevates the entire world with it. And, you know, we always have to say the landmark teaching of the Kutzka Rebbe, how tests work, right? If you pass a test, you get a bigger test. Right? Like, I love that, because it's so the opposite of how we're raised. <laughs> completely the opposite. You know, we pass a test, we think that we get a party. <laughs> it's like, like, it's endlessly counterintuitive. Because what is it? Imagine if you were in a, a, a work situation, in a, in a corporate structure. If you like aced like some company challenge, what would you get? A promotion. Which means what? Are they now, now that they've given you a promotion, are they giving you easier jobs or harder jobs? Harder jobs. So if you think about it in that way, it makes actually perfect sense. You now have demonstrated that you have the ability to, you know, to, 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 to battle on, a, on an even more significant front. And if you fail that test, says the Kutzka Rebbe, what do you get? A smaller test. And if you fail that test, you get a smaller test. And if you pass that test, you get a bigger test. And this is the way it is in life. Right? So, you know, let's just go with this for a moment in terms of Elul and Rosh Hashanah. You know, we, a lot of times it's sort of like, we want all these goodies. And we tend to think of these goodies as rewards. Like, give me this reward and that reward and this reward and that reward. But on another level, they're, they're also sort of like tests. Now, we're not asking for tests, right? Because it says that, if you, that every person is given the ability to overcome whatever situation God puts them in. The very thing. And then if you find yourself in a hard situation, know that God put you in that situation, and he would have only put you in that situation if you had the wherewithal to overcome that situation. So everyone is given the strength to overcome the challenges in their life. However, if you ask for a test, that's not the rule. (laughs) Right? So sometimes if we put ourselves in situations which are not great situations, we aren't necessarily given the ability to, to handle those situations. So that's another part of this teaching that I heard in the name of the Nativa Shalom, the Slonim Revi, which is that when you go out to war against your enemies, who are your enemies? It doesn't say who your enemies are. You know why? Because you have to figure that out. You have to figure out what are your weaknesses. What, what are my weaknesses? Let me... You know, we, we always talk about from a positive standpoint, let me catalog my strengths. But you know what? 
I think it would be an amazing exercise for us to catalyze our, catalog our weaknesses as well. Let's be aware of our weaknesses so that we don't put ourselves in a situation where we become vulnerable. Right? So, so knowing, knowing your enemies as well. Now, now here's another thing about the Yetzirah, which is that we're very... The Yetzirah the has many guises, and one of its guises is that it's our best friend. And how does it manifest itself in that guise? When you hear the voice saying, hey, why don't we go here and do that? <laughs> and then you go, hey, that's a great idea. I was just going to suggest that to you. Thank you for suggesting it to me. You know, so then it's sort of like you and your bud are off to whatever misadventure, right? And you think that that's your best friend. And what we find out is that the Yetzirah is the first one to testify against our souls in the heavenly court after 120. And so it's the ultimate betrayal. We think that we've been riding shotgun and it's been wearing like one of these government wires the entire time, like recording all of our information to actually use against us. And so if we understand that it's not our best friend, that it doesn't have our best interests in mind, then, then, it's, then, then we're in an appropriate relationship with it. Now, another thing about the Yetzirah is you, a person will live with their Yetzirahs their entire life. And if you get to the point in your life where you say, I finally defeated the Yetzirah, that's the Yetzirah talking. <laughs> <laughs> and you better be careful, because the moment you say, I finally defeated the Yetzirah, you can almost like go, Three, two, one, before you make a big Avera. <laughs> because at that point, it's like, if you know anything about hockey, there is no goalie at the net at that moment. <laughs> you are wide open. You are wide open at that moment for any measure of wrongdoing. Okay? So, so this idea of understanding that it's a, it's a lifelong thing. Now, I heard an interesting teaching it's like a, a, that, that says that there are three basic stages of life. Okay, this is a giant generalization, but it's good to know. Three basic stages of life. Um, sex, money, power. Or sex, money, honor. Okay? So in the first stage of a person's life, the Yetzirah will mostly drive you in that direction of sort of interpersonal hormone-driven activity. That's kind of the first stage of life. Second stage of life, it's kind of accumulation of wealth. Right? It'll sort of send you in, 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 in that direction more. Those will be the chief challenges there. Then your last stage of life, it's, it becomes a lot about honor. Honor and power. You know? Exerting those things. And, and, and you get sort of like all sorts of tests in that area, right? Very, very interesting. And again, it's, it's, it's a, this, is a very, this is a very loose construct, but I, it's, it's, it's more right than wrong, for sure. And it's, it gives us another insight as we go through life, like where we are on that map. Again, that's under the category of knowing your enemies.
right? Um, so, so with with this in mind, I want to just kind of kind of make it more personal and um, just share with you a, like a, a process that that I was going through, and and maybe this will be uh, maybe this will be helpful. Um, so I. I learned something from my father. My father was a, a, a psychologist, Oliver Shalom, who um, he, he practiced for 50 years. So he had a, a tremendous reservoir of, of, of wisdom and insight into the human condition. And one of the things that he told me that I, I never stopped thinking about is he said that people, um, people stay in relationships, even abusive relationships, because a need of theirs is being met. Now, let's, let's, let's just think about that for a moment, and then we're going to go even deeper. Which is, imagine I'm in a, an abusive relationship. You know, whether uh, emotionally abusive or physically abusive or something like that. And I'm staying in this relationship. Why? Because on some level, according to this, according to what my father said, because on some level, I have such a low self-esteem about myself that when this person is emotionally abusive to me, that reinforces, for me, perversely, in a positive way, my own low self-esteem. And so on some level, this person is, is, is helping me and, 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 and facilitating my own opinion about myself. That is, that, this is the definition of a dysfunctional relationship. This is, this is dysfunction, you know, at its root level, okay? But there's an amazing insight here. There's an amazing insight here, which is that on the one level, where we might just sort of like say, oh, that person is a victim. That person is a, a victim. And by the way, and especially according to um, U.S. law and things like that, they might be 1,000% a victim. Nonetheless, on a psychological level, there could be some aspect where that person is, is having a need fulfilled. Okay? I, again, I'm talking really about on the emotional level right now. You know, physical abuse is a whole other category. I'm really not talking about that. Okay? All right. Now, here's the next step. What about how we are with ourselves? There are certain psychological dynamics that we perpetuate in ourselves which are probably abusive dynamics. And the question is, and this is what I was doing, I, I, I started sort of um, consulting at this place, a kind of a part-time thing, and uh, I was around a new set of people and I was nervous and things like that and feeling self-conscious and and falling into a pattern of sort of like you know trying to stop myself from shutting down things like that you know and so I was just kind of talking to myself as I was driving and and saying well well what's going on like this is a I feel like you're kind of like going back to this old dynamic what is this old dynamic and I said well you know it's like this insecurity, you know. So I said, okay, well, and then I thought about what my dad said years ago, and I thought, well, what are you getting out of this? 
you know, because you're perpetuating this on some level. I mean, let's just go with your father's thought for a moment. What, and so I asked myself this question, which sort of shocked me. I didn't, you know, this sort of all kind of happened in the moment. I said, what, what am I getting out of this sort of like dynamic of insecurity, which makes me feel horrible and like shuts me down and things like that? What am I getting out of it? So I thought, okay, well, let me go through it systematically. Well, if I, if I feel very insecure, I'm very aware of my interactions with each person. And I said to myself, well, I can be very aware of that without being insecure, right? I mean, I'm a nice guy. I'm going to be aware of my interactions with people regardless. I don't have to do it with this overlay of insecurity, right? Um, well, I want whatever I try to contribute to be valuable. And so this makes me very aware of what I'm about to say. But the truth is, is that if I'm sort of like overly aware about what I'm about to say, I might end up not saying it because I'm afraid it might be much of a contribution. So actually, it's actually having the opposite effect of contributing, not, not making my contributions more valuable. So how is that helping me? That's not, that's not helping me either. So what I realized was that this dynamic, whenever I may have um, sort of like taken it on, Maybe it was helpful at that stage of life, maybe, but, but it certainly is not helpful right now. And it probably wasn't helpful for that initial stage of life either. In other words, it may have just been sort of like trying in a sort of like a dysfunctional way or a, let's like put it this way, an inefficient way to address certain needs that I felt needed to be addressed. And that was sort of like a, this like failed emotional improv moment that was trying to you know cover a bunch of bases at once and sort of morphed into this you know emotionally dysfunctional dynamic, right? So the question is, is that I would sort of like in, in, invite you, invite all of us to ask yourself: Are do you have some? emotionally dysfunctional dynamics. And then to ask yourself the question, what positive benefit am I getting from those things? Because it's giving, it's giving you something positive. More likely than not, it's giving you something positive. Identify what those positive things are, and then ask yourself, can I address those things in an emotionally healthy way? Right? You know, you know, you say, okay, you know something, I'm, I'm, I'm so like this because I'm always late. Okay, great. So then how about this? How about leaving your house a half an hour earlier than you normally would? Right? I mean, I was sort of like kind of late to go to this place. And it just happened to be, just the circumstances happened to be that I got there like, a half an hour earlier than I was going to get, and there was no parking. And I can't even tell you what a delight it was to have all the time in the world to find a parking space. Have you ever heard that? Anyone say that before? What a delight it was to try to find a parking space when I couldn't find one. There's never anything emotionally pleasurable about that. Ever. Ever. By, de by definition. This was so wonderful because I was like, I'm not late. 
I'm not late. I have time. I can even go three blocks out of my way and it's no skin off, you know? So it was like, so again, ask yourselves, why, why am I doing this? What benefit is it giving me? And then ask yourself, can I do this? Can I address those very same things in an emotionally healthy way? And I think because, because again, that's, that's the Yetzirah at work. The Yetzirah wants you to be blind to these dynamics. It wants you to be blind to these dynamics. You know, there used to be a... Um, There used to be a, a clothing store in New York named Sims, and it was like one of these um, like Lomans type places that had like name brand labels, and they had like their slogan was an educated customer. No, an educated consumer, consumer is our best customer. An educated consumer is our best customer because like if you didn't know that these were like the top labels, you didn't understand that, what kind of great deal that you were getting. But if you actually knew what these labels were, and you were like, at that price? I love this place, right? So, so for the eight Sahara, it's the opposite. An uneducated consumer is our best customer. <laughs> if, if it can keep you blind to these dynamics, these spiritual and emotional dynamics, then, then it's going to just keep you trapped in its palm all the days of your life. Now, it will always be a force to reckon with, but you can, you can know the landscape, and that makes a huge difference. That's a, it makes a huge difference in your life. And then finally, I don't know if I should throw this in, but I'm going to throw it in anyway, because I learned it from one of my favorite rabbis, and it helped me. The Yetzirah actually wants to kill you. So, you should just know that it actually, it actually means business. It actually means business. And I say that because, you know, I always think of this quote from the novelist uh, Nabokov, which is, you know, he was a very brilliant writer. And he, he, he wrote one time, I, I love this turn of phrase, please don't understand me too quickly. And knowing that the Yetzirah actually wants to kill a person just gives you a little bit more respect. You know what I'm saying? Please don't understand it too quickly because it's, it's, it's more advanced than that. And you have to understand what you're dealing with. So, so, so all these things... And, and a person can really make progress in their life. And, and that's the greatness. That's the greatness. You can actually get to a point in your life where you hear a voice in your head and you'll go, that's the Yitzhar, moving on, <coughs> right? And not allow yourself to get depressed and things like that, and stay clear and things like that, and hear a voice in your head, oh, I can't do that. You know, meaning that I'm not capable of doing something that I want to do. And to be able to say, that's the Yetzirah, and just to move on. And, and one, of the, one of the counterbalances to this is that as you sort of like um, get the tools 
to, 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 to hear and to refine that voice, right? To be able to um, develop a very, to develop your Yetzir Tov, your, your positive side, which is the voice in your head that says, you can do it, you're good, I love you, you're, you're fantastic, that, that was a big accomplishment, you can, you, 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 you're, you're doing great, keep up the good work, you, you can do it, that was fantastic. It's, it's very important that that voice be very large in your head. And we'll just maybe, maybe uh, add one more teaching about the Yitzhahara, which is, which is that there's a teaching that, that, that when Yaakov Avinu heard the voice of God, the, the rabbis asked, what, what did that sound like in his head? And it says it sounded like the voice of his father Yitzchak. And then when Yitzchak heard God speaking to him, what, what, what did it sound like? What voice did it sound like? They, said, they say it sounded like Avraham Avinu. And when Avraham Avinu heard that voice from God, who did it sound like? Since Avraham Avinu is really kind of like the beginning of a whole new line, right? So what I, what I remember learning was that it sounded like himself. And, and I think that that's, that that's very interesting because when Avraham Avinu is, is told to, um, to take his son Yitzchak and to put him on the altar, it, it, it never says, it's, without going into all the details, it never says kill your son. That's very important. It's, 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 it's misrepresented that that's the way. It said, take your son and put him on the altar. Now, the clear implication was to be sacrificed. That was the clear implication, but that was never said. The reason why that's important, just as an aside, is that it's not like God said, kill your son, and then, oh, I changed my mind, don't kill your son. Because God doesn't change his mind. It's a whole topic in itself. But it's just important to know that he was never told to kill his son. Okay. So, so, so we say that this was the most difficult test any individual was ever given ever. Okay? Now, if you look at the language of the Torah, and I, I think that this is such a, an important lesson for all of us in our own lives, it says, Kachna, which is translated as, please take your son. In other words, a lot of times we hear a voice in our head, and it says, do this mitzvah! Do it right now! And you think that that's how... God speaks to you. And here, here you see that the hardest thing anyone's ever been asked ever, that the language was, kachna, please take. Meaning to say that that's how God speaks. That, that if you hear this voice, you can be sure that it's not God talking to you. That, that's huge. That, that's huge. That's huge. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw in one more idea. Can do we have time for one more idea? Okay. So we're just gonna deepen it. We're gonna deepen it one one more level. So in this, in this week's Parsha, 
it also talks about this, this amazing mitzvah of shooing away the mother bird before you take the eggs from its nest. And it's, there's a lot of amazing, amazing mystical literature and all sorts of things and halachic literature all about this particular mitzvah. So if you are walking through the woods, say, and you see a nest with some eggs and there's the mother bird, you're supposed to shoo away the mother bird and then take the eggs. So, so the rabbis teach on this something very amazing, which is don't say, don't say that this is a sign of God's compassion. Now you would think to me that if I had to find one illustration of God's compassion, this would be it. The fact that the mother shouldn't see the eggs being taken away in front of her. So you shoo the mother bird away, and this is the, this is the headquarters of God showing how compassionate he is. It says, don't say that. Don't say God is compassionate here. And the explanation that I learned, which was very meaningful to me, was that, why? Why? Because if you say, that's a sign of God being compassionate, what have you done? You have made yourself the judge of when God is compassionate and when he isn't. You have made yourself the final authority, and now that you've called God compassionate here, now you have license to talk about all the times when God absolutely isn't compassionate. Now, with this, with this in mind, I want to tell you a, a teaching from Pirkei Avos. It's uh, chapter 4, Mishnah number 19. I'm going to read it. Rabbi Yanai said, It is not in our power to explain either the tranquility of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. Say it, we'll say it one more time. Rabbi Yanai said, It is not in our power to explain either the tranquility of the wicked or the suffering of the righteous. Now, Rabbi Hirsch has a brilliant just explanation of what those words mean. We cannot know for sure if what befalls each of them, meaning the wicked or the righteous, is indeed a blessing or a calamity. We must therefore abstain from passing judgment in either case and not permit our own short-sighted view of events to influence our decisions. It's an amazing, that's an amazing, amazing teaching. Because the bottom line is, is that there's an aspect of ourselves, and I think that the part of this is the Yetzirah, that wants to just know and have all of the answers and wants to just be on solid ground all of the time and to be able to say, this is compassionate, this is not compassionate, this is right, this is wrong, and, and to be that person who is the final authority. And yet what this is telling us is that there's a higher wisdom in many events in our life, which is the wisdom of being able to say, I don't know. And that, and that is actual wisdom, because we tend to, especially in our secular educations, identify, I don't know with ignorance, and I don't know with failure. And yet, as a person advances in life, I don't know can be the highest wisdom. And especially, you know, the, the Vilna Gon wrote a letter to his children, and he said to them, be aware that what you laugh about today, you'll cry about tomorrow. And what you cry about today, you'll laugh about tomorrow. Another amazing teaching. Amazing teaching. 
And how can you sort of like uh, paraphrase that? What do we know? <laughs> right? As Rip Shlomo would say all the time, what do we know? What do we know? What do we know? What do we know? Right? And that's wisdom. That's wisdom. That's not ignorance. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. You know, because a lot of times the Sahara wants to force you to come to a conclusion that you simply don't have the evidence to do. And then force you to take a position that you don't... You know, I'll tell you something. One of the, one of the most amazing things that I've read in, in years and years and years, Frank Rich was a, an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. And he stopped, being, he, stopped, he stopped that job at a certain point, and I read his farewell column, okay? And one of the things that he wrote in this farewell column, he was talking about why he's leaving this post, because, you know, in terms of, you know, a certain sector of society, having your own column in the New York Times on the op-ed page is like, that's it, you have, you are now influencing the world. And, and you are, by the way in terms of, on, on that level, from, from that point of view. So why, someone who has gotten their own op-ed column in, in, in the New York Times, why would they ever give it up ever? It's like you, you hold that like a Supreme Court judge. You, you hold that for the rest of your life. Or a tenured professor. You hold that for the rest of your life. So one of the things that he wrote is that because I had deadlines multiple times a week, I found myself taking more opinionated stands on things that I actually didn't feel that strongly about. <laughs> a fascinating, a fascinating, fascinating insight. You know, because he, he knows, he wants to keep his job. He has to write compelling copy. He has to write, you know, hard-hitting opinion pieces. But you know what? No one's got that many hard-hitting opinions. <laughs> you just, you know? Unless you're a psycho. Right? You just don't have that many amazing opinions, which are so hard hit. You just don't have them. But if you've got a deadline and you're writing on the op-ed page of the New York Times, you better have hard-hitting opinions twice a week, three times a week, whatever it is. So at a certain point, he said that he found himself having very strong opinions about things that he didn't feel that strongly about. And that's another dimension of the Sahara, right? Which is that it, 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 it forces us because, you see, it says in, in the Gomorrah, in, in, in the Talmud, in, in Mesech Tabruchas, that a person has to train themselves to say, I don't know. In other words, these are very hard words for a person to say, I don't know. Okay, we're hardwired to not like to say those words. But you know what? They're very, uh, they're very healing words. And oftentimes they're very accurate words and they're very truthful words. And, 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 and it's, it's one of the counters to the Sahara that wants to force ourselves into a form of clarity that, that, that is suspect. And, and I'll tell you something. I don't know... There's a lot of clarity to that. <laughs> we tend to think that that is the opposite of clarity. But being at sort of peace with the fact that I live in a world where I'm never going to have all the answers is actually, in a weird way, kind of 
common. You know? Okay. So we'll just wrap it up and 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 just know that that the Yetzahara exists, that it knows you better than you know yourself, that you're going to be living with it in different ways for your whole life, probably. And that it's an aspect of God that it wants you to say no to it and not yes to it. And that it's not there to lead you astray. It's there so that you can actually contribute more and to get all of your potential out of you and to manifest it into the world. And that if you pass a test, you get a bigger test. And that makes sense because if you're at a company and you do an amazing job, they want to promote you and give you more to do. Right? And that as we prepare for this coming year, let's let's start actually starting the projects and making vessels for the blessings that, that we want to receive.